0: Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast Over Coffee. Napoleon once said, I would rather suffer with coffee than be senseless. If you're a coffee connoisseur, this episode is just for you. Not many people start their day without a cup of coffee. It may be drip coffee from a nearby convenience store or a fancy white chocolate mocha. I sit down with social anthropologist and author of the book, Making Better Coffee, Dr. Edward Fisher to discuss the history, evolution, and waves of coffee culture. This is part one of a two-part episode. In this part, we focus on the history and evolution of coffee culture. Dr. Fisher is a professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, and his research focuses on political economy, well-being, and social economy. He is a highly cited researcher and an expert in his field, who has also co-founded the social enterprise Mani Plus that develops and produces locally sourced complementary foods to fight malnutrition in Guatemala. We will deep dive on that aspect in part two. But without further ado, let's move on to the conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Fisher, for your time. I actually grew up in small towns in the south of India. It's a significant producer of coffee. But till the age of about 16, I had only tasted one kind of coffee. Uh, It's only after I moved out for college did I realize that coffee actually comes in so many forms. Um, I know you're a social anthropologist and have a diverse field of interests, but what sparked your interest in researching coffee?
1: Well, one thing is that I drink coffee, and I think many of us are interested in things that affect our own lives, right? And so many people in the world, myself included, have a personal relationship with coffee. I remember when I first started drinking coffee, certain coffee shops have been really important in my life as I was studying in college or graduate school. So there's a little bit of that personal connection to it that drew me to studying coffee. It's also the case that I've long worked in Guatemala uh, with Mayan peoples in Guatemala. And Guatemala has a particular history with coffee. It's associated with uh, a largely German-based oligarchy in Guatemala that controls the large coffee plantations. Labor conditions on those plantations are uh, generally perceived to be awful, uh, sort of the poster children of, of, you know, neocolonial kinds of exploitative labor. Um, and so I thought I knew the story of coffee in Guatemala, I'm a Guatemalan expert. I've spent most of my career studying Guatemala. Coffee is a big part of the history. And so I thought I knew that. And then uh, some years back, about 10 or 12 years ago, I was actually in a meeting with some coffee people. And they were saying that the market for coffee has changed so much that there's this move to drinking higher quality coffee, Consumers in the global north are willing to pay a lot more for their cups of coffee. And as part of that, and we can go into this later if we want to, as part of that, production moved uphill uh, into the really high elevation areas. It turns out that those are the areas to which the, the Maya were relegated during the colonial period. Spaniards and the Germans didn't want to occupy those steep slopes. It's like, okay, we'll keep these lower uh, level grounds and, and, and create our big plantations there. So there was this poetic justice of the coffee market coming around in a way that started benefiting Mayan communities rather than just being based on their exploitation. So as a cultural anthropologist who works with Mayan farmers, That was such a surprising story to me that I thought, oh, wow, I need to I need to delve into that further. Uh, And just one other thing, and this is something we will pick up on later, I'm, I'm sure, is that coffee. I love teaching about coffee and I like writing about coffee and I guess speaking about coffee as well. Right. Partly because. It can take you can you can tell so many different stories through the coffee bean. You can tell stories of neurochemistry and the way in which caffeine affects us. You can tell stories of the age of colonization and how coffee spread around the world and sort of colonial exploitation. You can tell stories about the current global economy, the role of, of coffee and cultures and Arabic cultures and Western cultures in India. So there's some, it's it's really the world in, the, in a bean that way. And uh, sure, we could probably say that about lots of things, many, many things. Uh, but I think coffee is especially rich that way in combining the biology and the agriculture and the history and the economics
0: yeah interesting you mentioned about coffee and how the trail can be traced to you know so many different things colonial exploitation and oppression and all of that it's actually funny how uh even banana has that story you know the cavendish banana has there were so many wars fought there were i think it's also related to the panama canal history um uh, where one really smart and ambitious engineer wanted to export bananas. And that's that's part of history now. Right.
1: And also sort of that colonial enlightenment mindset of through science, we can make everything better, right? We can make a, we can, we can design a banana that really works well on large plantations. This thing that used to be a luxury item, right? An exotic luxury in the global north anyway, becomes super cheap uh, in, the, in the early 20th century because of all of these innovations. And so on the one hand, it's really cool. On the other hand, I think we're starting to realize that that kind of you know, blind commitment to efficiency erases lots of things all the really tasty bananas of which we have remnants. You know, if you travel, you can have interesting bananas. But if you just go to a grocery store in the United States, it's going to be the same, same bland thing.
0: Yeah, and wow. it's actually fascinating how, you know, the banana that we get in grocery stores tastes nothing like how it used to uh, in probably the late 1800s. And I come from India, like I said, and we get so many types of bananas. And one of the things that struck me when I moved to the U.S. was that there is only one type of banana. I mean, obviously, you can get plantain and other things at different grocery stores but it's usually cavendish banana that we that we all eat um,
1: no that's right although these days it's sort of changing with the luxury food market moving in that direction at whole foods and your nicer grocery stores you can find some little mini varieties and things like that but you're you're right the norm you could also reference india talk about mangoes uh and sort of the variety that we get in the states uh kind of mediocre grocery store mangoes, which are still taste good to my taste buds right uh but i really want to take a mango tour to india sometimes and taste the the full range
0: yeah yeah i mean we have so many different kinds it's it's crazy so coming back to coffee uh, how did coffee become so popular around the world where did it start like how did what what is the earliest signs of discovery I know it might be very difficult to trace back, but...
1: It is. Uh, it is difficult to trace back to an exact time. Uh, and in the early days of the global coffee trade, most of the coffee was coming from present-day Yemen, from the port of Mocha. And that's actually what led uh, Linnaeus, when he was doing his binomial taxonomy things, named it Kofea Arabica, for the Arabian Peninsula, because it was thought that it was native at that, that area. But so we know now that it actually c- comes from Ethiopia, sort of the highland areas of Ethiopia, which if we we think of our map is not very far from Yemen. It, it's it, I mean, you know, it's a, it could be a perilous water journey, but people were going back and forth. Right. It, it wasn't thousands of miles or, or anything like that.
0: We know That's true. You cross the Red Sea and you are in Ethiopia. That's right.
1: Exactly. And so we know from genetic diversity now that it it uh, it emerged uh, first in Ethiopia, maybe around Harar. We're not really sure exactly where, but there's the greatest diversity. Um, and then it started getting exported to uh, to Yemen and like. Uh, early on, you know, 4th, 5th century uh, AD, and then the Yemenis started cultivating it, and there is, in that part of the Arabian Peninsula, there's some highland areas. Hafi is really particular in that it likes high elevation tropical areas, so you need that combination of sort of in the tropics, but also a, a high elevation, and then the, 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 the Arab merchants from mocha just sort of declared a monopoly on the coffee trade and by and started cultivating it. They were first importing it from Ethiopia, then they started cultivating it, then they started selling it to the Dutch and others. And on pain of death, could someone take a live seedling out of mocha? Uh, this was how much. And so they were able to control the gold, global coffee trade. For a couple of 300 years, maybe three 300 plus years, because which it's which is pretty incredible.
0: I've heard similar is, story about nutmeg from Indonesia.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in fact, uh, Amitav Ghosh has this book, a uh, newish book out, The Nutmeg's Curse, which is a brilliant history of nutmeg's expansion.
0: Yeah, yeah. So back in those days, did, did the Arabs know Get the seed out, roast it. What was the right temperature? How how good of an expert were there?
1: Uh, so the the who really knows, right? So all the stories about when it first started being consumed as what we would consider to be coffee are a little, uh, you know, shrouded in myth and and a bit apocryphal. One is that an Ethiopian goat herd.
0: Uh,
1: uh, Caldi, and many coffee shops now are named Caldi after this. uh, They call this goat herd saw his goats eating coffee uh, cherries and beans and getting all excited, and so tried it out. Uh, it's it's unclear who first started drinking coffee or consuming coffee. Uh, hmm. One neat thing, I'll come back to the history of it, but one neat aside is early days in Ethiopia, it looks like they were, they made these kind of proto-energy bars with fat and coffee seed, uh, beans ground up in it and they would create these little balls that could last for a long time and if you were going on a long journey you could just sort of eat those like we would a cliff bar or something which is which is kind of cool uh, that they were that they were doing that early days in Yemen though what is today Yemen and Mocha there was some skepticism around coffee because of muslim prohibitions against intoxicants And so it was a big debate among many Imams of, you know, oh, well, is is this, is it like wine? Is this an intoxicant? It changes people's perceptions. Uh, But the Sufis who were very much dedicated to staying up all night and praying uh, started using it as a prayer aid. And we're able to successfully lobby essentially that this is actually it helps us become closer to God rather than an intoxicant would take us further away. And there were controversies. A a prominent imam in Mecca uh, outlawed it for a bit, but then that got rescinded. And but eventually it spread across the, the Arab world. And there was really a when we talk about the European Enlightenment, we we emphasize the role of coffee shops in that as places that were what we would call today third spaces, right? They weren't the church. They weren't business. They weren't the home. They were this other space where people could come together. That really got pioneered hundreds of years earlier in the Arab world and having different all men, right? So it's not like this was some democratic paradise. But for that time, Men of different social ranks coming together uh, in coffee shops and having discussions, which is probably not unrelated to—I uh, don't know—I guess what we could call the 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 Arab Enlightenment, right? That that gave us geometry and medicine and all of these things that the Europeans later later threw up.
0: Oh, so coffee did play a huge part in Renaissance.
1: Absolutely uh absolutely uh in the in the Arab world as I was just explaining but then we go to Europe and so uh then you know 1500 1600s really 1600 1700s uh coffee shops are starting to pop up uh in London and Amsterdam and Hamburg and Paris Vienna uh and they it, it, until that time northern Europeans were consuming a remarkable amount of beer every day, several liters, because it was safer than water to drink. And then, and the gin taverns were really popular. And so, I mean, we would say that there was just a wave of alcoholism and, you know, sort of pre enlightenment, pre coffee shop Europe. The coffee shop coming on the scenes didn't totally get rid of that, but it provided this alternative. This alternative where people were consuming a drug, like alcohol, we would call it a drug, it affects our mental state, but one that that heightened concentration, uh, that stimulated rational debate rather than sort of drunken brawls. Uh, And so yes, historians, uh, Jurgen Habermas in particular, but various historians uh, really credit coffee shops and that shift away from a centuries-long beer buzz in Europe, essentially, uh, to to the enlightenment emerging in uh, in coffee shops. So secularism, democracy, uh, capitalism, individual freedom, all of these things got debated in the coffee shops in London and Amsterdam and Hamburg and, and those places.
0: Yeah, and eventually it became the most legal drug yeah, and
1: so effective that we don't even really think of it as a drug anymore. Sometimes when I'm giving talks and I emphasize that it is a drug, uh, people are a little uncomfortable with that because we have a different connotation for drug, right? That it's, uh, But yeah, it absolutely affects us. And that's not unrelated to its spread around the world and its colonial expansion, that it is a drug that people like and that started to want you know it's not like cocaine or even alcohol in terms of creating a dependency but we all know we've all heard people say oh i'm not myself i haven't had my coffee yet or uh, using that as an apology and that's basically saying i'm so dependent on this drug that i can use it as an excuse to be forgetful or to be whatever
0: when you think back when did people start to mix milk with coffee
1: Oh, man, that is a really good question that I'm not going to be able to absolutely answer. I will say Vienna is where we think about it in the Western tradition as really coming together in cappuccinos and all of the sort of terminology that emerged based on. Uh, and all of those were based on the color and the ratio of of coffee to milk and cappuccino, like the cappuccino monks uh, 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 robes. Uh, I'm not really sure. That's a great question. Uh, uh, yeah,
0: uh, yeah, that'll probably need another, another session. Sometime
1: but they, uh, but and we often think of coffee and chocolate together again, tropical products that have been used, both combine really well with milk. Uh, that's, that's interesting.
0: So maybe there is some similarity over there. Now, coming to modern-day coffee, I know we are in 2023. You know, third-wave coffee is pretty big. It's become a really popular term these days. But let's go back to first wave and the second wave. What, What is the significance of these three waves in coffee? So
1: we do in coffee studies, and not everybody is wild about this terminology, but I find it very useful. We talk about first wave, second wave, and third wave coffee. The first wave coffee is really the first commercial standardized product uh, coffee that came about in the early 20th century, maybe the late 19th century, but really the early 20th century. And in the U.S., a lot of the brand names that are still around emerged at that time. Folgers, Maxwell House. I'm speaking to you actually from Nashville, Tennessee, where, where I teach, and Maxwell House was a hotel here, uh, that had a coffee blend that was especially popular and so they started selling it nationwide and similar to that and so before that time coffee had been drunk absolutely normally in you go to a general store or a grocery store and it would be in a barrel beans in a barrel that the the the, the proprietor of the store would would portion out into into bags that was rife it, it's hey, it's not a great way to keep coffee exposed like that, but whatever. Uh, it's also, though, rife for being able to adulterate the coffee, to put a little bit of chicory in there, or put a little bit of some kind of grain in there and increase the weight. And if it's not too much, it won't affect the, the taste too much. So in reaction to that, and this wasn't only in coffee, but in other foods, packaged foods begin to emerge with a brand name in a sealed package. And this was saying to the consumer, you know what you're getting. This is 100% coffee beans. We're backing it up with our name, Folgers, Maxwell House, Chockful Full of Nuts, Sanborns, whatever they were. Uh, and you can trust this. And so that was kind of the industrialization of coffee produced on these large plantations in Guatemala and Brazil and Indonesia and the Caribbean islands, awful labor conditions, but producing cheap coffee. And big companies in the U.S. were roasting this and packaging it and selling it nationwide. Uh, and that really lasted uh, through, the, through the 60s. Um, and uh, price, it, they were really competing on price uh, rather than, than quality. Uh, on the grocery store shelf. And so as a result, quality kind of decreased uh, because they were using more fillers. Most quality coffee is Arabica, Coffea Arabica. Robusta is the other main species, which is more bitter. So, and they were putting more Robusta into their mixes.
0: It's interesting that you talk about chicory because remember the first sentence that I said, you know, till the age of 16, I had only drank one kind of coffee. South of India actually drinks coffee mixed with chicory in like an 80 to 20% ratio. And what happens is the coffee becomes thicker. I don't know what a change in taste happens. But fun fact, I I moved to the US and in Louisiana, they mix coffee with chicory. And it's fascinating. So chicory was primarily an adulterant to increase the weight of coffee so that, you know, you don't have to sell. And then people got a taste for it. Because it does.
1: It is this nice sort of extra taste. And so you're right. There are these places, New Orleans, uh, Southern India, where it's become the norm. Wow.
0: So the first wave of coffee was these industrial giants bringing in coffee to the U.S. and selling it for cheap, branded labels. And then eventually what happened was the quality of coffee started to dip because of this adulteration. And and then probably exactly right led to the yes. second wave. I, guess. Uh,
1: I would also mention that it's not a coincidence uh, that it was also in the '60s where soft drink consumption in the U.S. surpassed coffee consumption, uh, and so there was this declining quality. Uh, people were moving to soft drinks. Coffee was in this kind of funky space in the in the in the '60s. And so you then had a few people, uh, and most notably, uh, Pete's coffee in the, in the Bay area, uh, in California, uh, starting to say, Hey, you know, we've, we've forgotten what coffee can be like, uh, let's try roasting some quality coffee beans and roasting them in a really, you know, artistic way to bring out the flavors and, and see if people will, will go for that, uh. And so, very, very slowly, but yeah, Pete's start emerging. Starbucks took off from Pete uh, that way with the with the same sort of uh, of thought of bringing quality coffee. We see that now in so many areas, right? Heirloom tomatoes and single barrel bourbons and single origin chocolates, and we're moving in that direction in many, many areas. Um, In coffee that really went slowly through the 1970s. And then by the 1980s, second wave roasters are popping up in cities across the US. Uh, In New Orleans, where I was living at the time, it was PJ's Coffee. Uh, Here in Nashville, local roaster Bongo opened in 1993, uh, I think, so in that 80s, 90s, local roasters were popping up around the States. Selling more particular kinds of, of coffees, uh, and for for a higher price,
0: and all these roasters would specialize in roasting the arabica beans. But how did they distinguish themselves with with each other? Just the dark medium. Great question. Yeah, roast. pretty much.
1: So it was. Uh, so during that time, you had the emergence of a couple of re- of named regions. Uh, primarily Kona from Hawaii and Blue Mountain from uh, from Jamaica. And so you had some sort of regions like that, uh, but they were trying to differentiate their coffees by area. So you could buy Guatemalan coffees or Kenyan AA coffees uh, or things like that. But primarily it was on the roast. And so a French roast or a Viennese roast or a light roast or something like that. And then mixing uh, with milk, different kinds drinks, uh, so cappuccinos and frappuccinos, and that during that time, during the second wave, this attracts a little bit from the flavor of coffee as coffee, but all the syrups uh, that they started putting in uh, really took off during, during that period. It was this movement away from just coffee, or maybe if Folgers was really trying to distinguish themselves on quality, they would say 100% Arabica coffee on their beans or something like that. To, Okay, this is a Kona or this is a Kenyan coffee. This is a French roast coffee as opposed to a a lighter roast coffee or something like that. So if we see this as an evolution of taste, that was an important next step of getting people to pay a little bit more for a little bit higher quality and distinguishing. Oh, coffees don't all just taste like coffee, right? They're actually different flavor profiles within
0: that. I know in Italy, they had a pre-electric coffee maker era where they used to use something like a mocha pot to brew espresso. But coming to the US, did US have a pre-electric Ooh, that's coffee That's a good question. Uh,
1: yeah, but it was uh, uh, it was a lot of home roasting in the very early days. We would call today cowboy coffee, right? Crushing it up, pouring hot water over it, letting the the grind settle in the bottom or, or scoop. Out. but nothing like the the right. cool italian yeah
0: i think the second wave of coffee also coincided with rapid industrialization and Absolutely. more availability of coffee machines uh,
1: and and this brings up an important distinction in the coffee world uh we distinguish between uh, uh, uh the italian tradition espresso based drinks uh including cappuccinos and lattes and, and and everything that comes about that and filter coffee uh, and so the second wave was, was come somewhere in between, uh, you know, Starbucks and many of the second wave coffee shops were really pushing the espresso-based drinks, but at the same time selling these beans from particular regions. And then when the third wave emerges in the, in the 90s and 2000s, they're really go they're moving away from the uh, espresso-based drinks, the Italian drinks, and really focusing on the taste of particular beans. And so essentially, they're taking a lot of the trends of the second wave and just accelerating. So rather than just buying a Guatemalan coffee, buy a Guatemalan coffee from this particular farm that is located in this particular region, which has certain terroir characteristics to which it tastes taste stuff. So sort of really bringing it more into the wine level world of, of distinction that way. Most all of those are with filtered coffees uh, and not espresso coffees.
0: Interesting that you bring this up because for an average taster, I know there are super tasters who, for whom tastes hit entirely differently, but for an average taster, can, can they actually distinguish or do they have a palate that is fine enough to distinguish and appreciate coffee the way the third wave coffee markets?
1: Coffee. And one that the third wave coffee world uh, wrestles with a lot. The, the the simple answer, and when people uh, ask me, that is a question that I, I, I get uh, often. Uh, I tell them, absolutely yes. At a at a basic level, I can uh, I could uh, uh, serve you. Okay, uh, let me let me go into a little bit more between of the distinctions between third wave coffees. A traditional, uh, what we think of as traditional coffee taste, kind of chocolatey and maybe a little bit of tobacco and rich and and deep. Uh, Those normally come from washed beans. Uh, And so the, and this goes into, I tell people also, you would pay $50 a pound if you knew how many hands had to touch each one of those. Those cherries have to be picked individually because you want them just when they're exactly ripe. If you get them too green, they're not any good. And the bundles of cherries will have some green and some red. So these pickers have to go through by hand and pick out the individual cherries. Then they have to get depulped, and then they have to get dried, and then they have to get milled. It's a whole process that lots of people's hands touch That's the traditional washed process that produces what I call coffee coffee flavors very often. What's popular in recent years is a rediscovery of the natural process just lets cut co- you put cherries out. Uh, coffee is a it's a fruit. there's a, there's a, there's a cherry uh, and the bean is inside the cherry. You put the cherries out and you let it rot off of the beans. And that produces an enzymatic reaction that changes the flavor of the beans and brings out uh, like citric acids. It brings out different acids and fruity and floral uh, flavors to coffee. So that's a long way of leading up to saying, um, and right now these naturals are really popular. Uh, They're earning the the biggest premiums on the market. I we could sit down right now and I could serve you a classic washed, uh, arabica and a one of these crazy uh naturals that with like bubble gum and and uh and lavender and you know all of these flavors. You could absolutely tell the difference. No training necessary. Nothing. It's just like wow, these are different. Uh. So the easy answer is yes. The the more nuanced answer is we always learn our taste. Taste or not, humans seem to have a natural affinity to sweetness. Uh, we actually, uh, a, a colleague in, in Denmark has been uh, arguing lately that we also have, have a natural affinity to umami, that earthy mushroom, meaty flavor. Uh... So we probably do have a little bit of built-in preferences, but beyond that, really our tastes are learned. I'm a cultural anthropologist, right? So we 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 focus on that. You grew up with a learning a different taste profile than I did, and that's going to affect it. We that can change over time, and we can expand our palates, but it 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 changes how we uh how we how we uh taste things. Or how pleasurable we find certain tastes. So the long answer is, you people really have to be educated to learn to appreciate these new coffees. When I first tried one of these naturals, I didn't like it because it didn't taste like coffee to me. Uh, I've learned to appreciate it, and now I do like them. My go-to, my everyday coffee is still a a coffee coffee, a tradition. I, I like that that flavor profile, but I also like the cry. I had one not long ago that was just like a blueberry bomb in your mouth. And that's cool too, right? It's like, wow, that is, there's an artisanry of pulling out different flavor profiles and learning to appreciate those. And they're often much more like tea in some ways, or or they're just different than, than coffee coffee.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you bring... The fact that nuanced coffee does taste different even for an average taster. To go back to coffee shops these days and third third wave coffee, especially, is the high price justified? On an average, an American would pay something like seven to eight dollars for a third wave kind of coffee shop. And then the general coffee stores would would be like four to five dollars. And many, many financial advisors usually say that the the first thing to, to save money is cut down on coffee. And you can make it for 10 cents at home and you need to pay $4 or $5 at the coffee shop. So is the price justified? And I have a few follow-up questions, but- So an
1: economist would say, if people are paying it, then it's worth it to them. And so ergo it's justified. If we look at it in terms of like who, who's getting what percentage of that $7 along the supply chain? Uh, That's a very different question. And many consumers would be shocked at how little the farmers who are really doing the backbreaking work on this uh, are getting uh, out of that. At the same time, to be fully fair, I will say, and a a lot of activists around coffee, and and I basically agree with this, that farmers need to be receiving a greater percentage of a uh, coffee price, especially on these high-end uh, uh, coffees. That is absolutely true. At the same time, we shouldn't ignore packaging is a huge cost. It's a huge percentage. And to for fine coffee where you, you need to have a valve on the package so that the gases are able to escape, that's not cheap renting space in the United States or in a metropolitan area, that's not cheap. So I'm also sympathetic to these cafe owners who are, are trying to get by too, right? Uh, and yeah, some people are making a, a lot of money off of this, uh, but a lot of people, this is a passion project that they, they want to make a living and they want to make a good living, but it's not like, you know, they're not getting wealthy off of this. Uh, so, yeah. is, is it justified on the one hand? Yeah, we should all be paying $50 a pound for coffee at $7 a cup because of all the labor that goes into it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, that's not always distributed in the way in which we think.
0: With this, we come to the end of part one of my conversation with Dr. Fisher. In the second part of this conversation, we will really deep dive into coffee production, mainly in Guatemala and the lives of workers. Stay tuned for part two. Till then, peace.